Chapter 22 of The Countess of Rudelstadt. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Countess of Rudelstadt by George Sand, translated by Francis G. Shaw. Chapter 22 The weather became darker and darker. The wind continued to rise, and our two fugitives walked with difficulty for half an hour, sometimes upon stony paths, sometimes among briars and high grass, when the rain suddenly burst upon them with an extraordinary violence. Consuelo had not yet said a word to her companion, but seeing him anxious on her account and looking about for a shelter, she at last said to him, Fear nothing for me, sir. I am strong, and have no other trouble than that of seeing you exposed to so much fatigue and care for a person who is nothing to you, and who does not know how to thank you. The unknown made a movement of joy on seeing a deserted building, in one corner of which he succeeded in placing his companion, under cover from the torrents of rain. The roof of the ruin had been removed, and the space sheltered by an angle of the wall was so small that unless he placed himself quite close to Consuelo, the unknown was obliged to receive the rain. Still, he respected her situation so much that he withdrew from her in order to remove all cause for fear. But Consuelo could not long allow herself to accept such self-denial. She recalled him, and seeing that he persisted, she left her shelter, saying to him in a tone which he strove to render cheerful, Each in his turn, Sir Chevalier, I can bear being wet a little. You must take my place, since you refuse to share it. The Chevalier wished to lead Consuelo back to the shelter, which was the object of this generous contention. But she resisted him. No, said she, I will not yield to you. I see clearly that I offended you today by expressing the desire of leaving you at the frontier. I ought to expiate my fault. I could wish it to cost me a good cold. The chevalier yielded and placed himself in the shelter. Consuelo, feeling that she owed him a decided reparation, came and stood by his side, though she was humiliated at perhaps seeming to make advances to him. But she preferred to appear forward rather than ungrateful and she wished to resign herself to it in expiation of her fault. The unknown understood her so well that he remained as far from her as possible in a space of two or three square feet. Resting upon the rubbish, he even turned away his head in order not to embarrass her and not to show himself emboldened by her solicitude. Consuelo wondered that a man condemned to silence and one who condemned herself also to it, to a certain extent, should divine her so well, and should make himself so well understood. Every moment increased her esteem for him, and this singular esteem occasioned such powerful beatings of her heart, that she could hardly breathe in the atmosphere heated by the breath of this incomprehensibly sympathetic man. After a quarter of an hour, the tempest moderated so far as to permit the two travelers 
to resume their journey. But the wet paths had become almost impassable for a woman. The Chevalier suffered for some moments with his impassive countenance, as Consuelo slipped at every step and clung to him to keep herself from falling. But suddenly, tired at seeing her fatigue herself, he took her in his arms and carried her as if she had been a child, although she reproached him for it. But these reproaches did not extend to resistance. Consuelo felt fascinated and overcome. She passed through the wind and the storm, borne by this dark chevalier, who resembled the spirit of the night, and who cleared ravines and bogs with his burden, with a step as rapid and as sure as if he had been of an immaterial nature. They arrived thus at the ford of a little stream. The unknown rushed into the water, raising Consuelo in his arms as the ford became deeper. Unfortunately, this water spout of rain so heavy and so sudden had swollen the stream, which had become a torrent, and ran troubled and foaming with a dull and ominous murmur. The chevalier was already waist-deep, and in the effort which he made to sustain Consuelo above the surface, it was to be feared that his feet, embedded in the mud, might fail him. Consuelo was afraid for him. Let me go, said she. I know how to swim. In the name of heaven, let me go. The water is still rising. You will be drowned. At this moment, a furious blast of wind uprooted one of the trees of the bank, towards which our travelers were advancing. It dragged with it an immense mass of earth and stones, which for an instant seemed to oppose a natural dike to the violence of the current. The tree had luckily fallen across the stream, and the unknown began to breathe when the water, forcing its way through the obstacles which impeded it, gathered into a current of such strength that it became almost impossible for him to struggle any longer. He stopped, and Consuelo tried to disengage herself from his arms. Put me down, said she. I do not wish to be the cause of your death. I have strength and courage also. Let me struggle with you. But the chevalier pressed her to his heart with renewed energy. One would have thought he meant to perish there with her. She was afraid of that black mask, of that silent man who, like the undins of the old German ballads, seemed to wish to drag her into the boiling gulf. She dared no longer resist. For more than a quarter of an hour the unknown struggled against the fury of the waves and wind with a truly frightful coolness and perseverance, still holding Consuelo above the water and gaining a foot of ground in four or five minutes. He judged his situation with calmness. It was as difficult for him to return as to advance. He had passed the deepest place, and he felt that in the movement he would be compelled to make an order to return. The water might carry him away and cause him to lose his foothold. At last he reached the bank and continued his course without permitting Consuelo to walk and without taking breath, until he heard the whistle of Carl, who was anxiously waiting for them. Then he deposited his precious burden in the arms of the deserter, and felt exhausted on the sand. He breathed only in hollow groans. It seemed as if his chest would burst. Oh, my God, Carl, he is dying, said Consuelo, 
throwing herself beside the chevalier. See, that is the death rattle. Let us take off this mask which smothers him. Carl was about to obey, but the unknown, raising his hand with difficulty, arrested that of the deserter. That is right, said Carl. My oath, Signora, I swore to him that I would not touch his mask, even should he die before your eyes. Run to the carriage, Signora. Bring me my gourd of brandy, which is on the box. A few drops will revive him. Consuela wished to rise, but the chevalier retained her. If he must die, he wished to expire at her feet. That is right again, said Carl, who, in spite of his rough envelope, comprehended the mysteries of love. He had loved. You will nurse him better than I can. I will go for the gourd. Here, senor, added he in a low voice. I really believe that if you loved him a little and would have the charity to tell him so, he would not let himself die. Without that, I can answer for nothing. Carl withdrew, smiling. He did not entirely share Consuelo's terror. He saw that the chevalier's suffocation already began to be relieved. But Consuelo, terrified, and thinking that she was about to receive the last sigh of the generous man, encircled him with her arms and covered with kisses the upper part of his broad forehead, the only part of his face left unconcealed by the mask. Oh, my God, said she, take that off. I will not look at you. I will go away. At least you will be able to breathe. The unknown took both of Consuelo's hands and pressed them to his panting breast as much to feel their gentle warmth as to take from her the desire to relieve him by uncovering his face. At this moment all the soul of the young girl was in that chaste embrace. She remembered what Carl had said to her with a half-bantering, half-compassionate air. Do not die, said she to the unknown. Oh, do not let yourself die. Do you not see clearly that I love you? She had no sooner said these words than she thought she had said them in a dream, but they had escaped from her lips as if in spite of her. The chevalier had heard them. He made an effort to rise, fell upon his knees and embraced those of Consuelo, who burst into tears without knowing why. Carl returned with his gourd. The chevalier rejected the deserter's favorite specific and, resting upon him, gained the carriage in which Consuelo seated herself by his side. She was much troubled about the cold, which his wet garments must occasion him. Fear nothing, Signor, said Carl. Monsieur the Chevalier has not had time to get cold. He shall have my cloak, which I took care to put into the carriage when I saw the rain coming, for I thought one of you would get wet. When you wrap yourself in dry and thick garments over wet ones, you can keep in the heat for a long while. It is like a hot bath, and it is not unhealthy. But you, Carl, do the same, said Consuelo. Take my mantle, for you have got wet yourself to save us. Oh, as to me, said Carl, my skin is thicker than yours. Put the mantle also on the chevalier. Bundle him up well. And even should I kill this poor horse, I will drive you to the relay without getting stiff on the way. For an hour, Consuelo kept her arms twined round the unknown, 
and her head, which he had drawn upon his bosom, restored heat and life to it better than all the prescriptions and receipts of Carl. She sometimes interrogated his forehead and warmed it with her breath, in order that the sweat in which he was bathed might not grow cold. When the carriage stopped, he pressed her to his heart, with a strength which sufficiently proved to her that he was in all the fullness of life and happiness. Then he precipitately descended the steps and disappeared. Consuelo found herself in a kind of coach-house, face to face with an old man, half-servant, half-peasant, who carried a dark lantern and led her through a path bordered with hedges by the side of a house of mediocre appearance to a pavilion, the door of which he locked behind her, after having made her enter without him. Seeing a second door open, she entered a small apartment, very clean and very simple, composed of two rooms. One, a sleeping chamber well warmed, with a nice bed ready prepared, and another room, lighted with tapers and furnished with a comfortable supper. She remarked with sorrow that there was but one cover, and when Carl came to bring her bundles and to offer his services for the table, she did not dare say to him that all she desired was the company of her protector at supper. Go, eat, and sleep yourself, my good Carl, said she. I have no need of anything. You must be more fatigued than I am. I am not more fatigued than if I had just been saying my prayers at the fireside with my poor wife to whom God grant peace. Oh, I kissed the ground with the hearty goodwill when I saw myself once more out of Prussia, though I really don't know if we are in Saxony, in Bohemia, in Poland, or in China, as they used to say at Monsieur the Count Hoditz's at Rosewald. And how is it possible, Carl, that traveling on the box of the carriage, you have not recognized a single one of the places through which we have passed today? "'Because, apparently, I have never been over this road before, Signora, "'and then, because I cannot read what is written on the walls and guideboards, "'and finally, because we did not stop in any city or village, "'but always took our relays in some wood "'or in the courtyard of some private house. "'Finally, there is a fourth reason, "'which is that I have given my word of honor to Monsieur de Chevalier "'not to tell you, Signora.' You should have begun with that reason, Carl. I should have made no objections. But tell me, does the Chevalier appear ill? By no means, Signora. He goes and comes in the house, in which really does not seem to have much to do, for I can see no face in it but that of an old gardener, who is not very talkative. Then go and offer him your services, Carl. Run, leave me. What shall I do? He refused them ordering me to think only of you. Well, think of yourself, my friend, and make fine dreams about your liberty. Consuela retired to bed at the first dawn of the morning, and when she woke and had dressed, her watch showed two o'clock. The day appeared clear and brilliant. She tried to open the blinds, but in both rooms she found them fastened by secret springs, like those of the post-chaise in which she had traveled. She tried to go out. The doors were locked on the outside. She returned to the window and could distinguish only the nearest grounds of a modest orchard. 
Nothing indicated the neighborhood of a city or of a much-frequented road. The silence was complete in the house, and without was only broken by the humming of insects, the cooing of pigeons upon the roof, and from time to time by the plaintive sound of a wheelbarrow in alleys to which her view did not extend. She mechanically listened to these sounds, agreeable to her ear, so long deprived of the echoes of country life. Consuela was still a prisoner, and the great care that was taken to conceal her situation could not fail to give her some anxiety. But she was resigned for some time, at least, to a captivity which appeared so little frightful, and the love of the Chevalier did not cause her the same horror as had that of Mayer. Although the faithful Carl had desired her to ring as soon as she rose, she did not wish to trouble him, judging that he required a longer rest than she did. She feared, above all, to awaken her other traveling companion, whose fatigue must be excessive. She passed into the room adjoining her chamber, and instead of the repast of the previous night, which had been removed without her knowledge, she found the table loaded with books and the materials necessary for writing. The books tempted her but little. She was too much agitated to make use of them, and as, in the midst of her perplexities, she found an irresistible pleasure in retracing the events of the preceding night. She made no effort to distract herself from thinking of them. By degrees, the idea of continuing her journal came to her, as she was still kept au secret, and she wrote as a preamble this page upon a loose sheet. Dear Beppo, it is for you alone that I resume the recital of my strange adventures. Accustomed to talk to you with the freedom, inspired by conformity of age and similarity of ideas, I can confess to you emotions which my other friends might not understand, and which they would doubtless judge more severely than you will. This opening will make you guess that I do not feel exempt from faults. I am not so in my own eyes, although I am hitherto ignorant of their extent and consequences. Joseph, before relating to you how I escaped from Spandau, which in truth no longer appears of any consequence to me, in comparison with what now occupies my mind. I must tell you, how shall I tell you? I do not know myself. Is it a dream through which I have passed? And yet, I feel that my head burns and my heart thrills as if it wished to burst away from me and lose itself in another soul. Well, I will tell you all simply, for all is in this word, my dear friend, my good companion, I love. I love an unknown, a man whose face I have not seen, and whose voice I have not heard. You will say that I am foolish, and you will be right. Is not love a serious folly? Listen, Joseph, and do not doubt my happiness, for it is a happiness of which I had not the slightest idea a happiness which surpasses all the illusions of my first love at Venice, a happiness so intoxicating that it prevents my feeling the shame of having so quickly and foolishly accepted it, the fear of having wrongly placed my affection, even that of not being loved in return. Oh, but I am beloved. 
I feel it so certainly. Be certain that I do not deceive myself and that I love this time, really. Would I dare to say, passionately? Why not? Love comes to us from God. It does not depend upon ourselves to enkindle it in our bosom, as we would kindle a torch upon an altar. All my efforts to love Albert, whose name I now write with trembling, did not succeed in producing that burning and sacred flame. Since I lost him, I have loved his memory better than I loved his person. Who knows in what manner I could love him if he were restored to me? Hardly had Consuela traced these last words than she effaced them. Not enough, perhaps, to prevent their being still read, but enough to relieve herself from the terror of having written them. She was strongly excited, and the reality of her love betrayed itself in spite of her, in what she had most secret. She wished in vain to continue to write, in order to explain better to herself the mystery of her own heart. She could find nothing to express the delicate shade but these terrible words. Who knows in what manner I could love Albert if he were restored to me. Consuelo could not deceive herself. She had thought she loved, with love, the memory of the dead. But she felt life overflow in her bosom and a real passion extinguish an imaginary one. She tried to read over all that she had written in order to escape from this disorder of mind. In doing so, she found in it only disorder and despairing of having calmness enough to concentrate herself. Feeling that the effort made her feverish, she crushed the written sheet in her hands and threw it upon the table until she could burn it. Trembling like a guilty soul, her face on fire, she walked about with agitation and could not longer think of anything except that she loved, and that she could not doubt it. Someone knocked at the door of her sleeping room, and she re-entered it to open for Carl. His face was heated, his eye troubled, his jaw rather heavy. She thought him ill with fatigue, but she soon understood from his answers that he had welcomed rather too freely on his arrival in the morning the wine or the beer of hospitality. This was poor Carl's sole defect. A certain dose made him confiding to excess. A stronger one might make him terrible. Fortunately, he had kept to the dose of expansion and benevolence, and there remained something of it in him, even after having slept all day. He was full of Monsieur the Chevalier. He could speak of nothing else. Monsieur the Chevalier was so good, so humane, so little proud with poor people. He had made Carl sit opposite to him, instead of allowing him to tend at table, and had compelled him to share his meal, and had poured out for him the best wine, pledging him at every glass and holding his own like a true slave. What a pity he is only an Italian, said Carl. He well deserves to be a bohemian. He carries wine as well as I do. Perhaps that is not saying much, replied Consuelo, but little flattered by this great readiness of the Chevalier to drink with valets. But she immediately reproached herself for being able to consider Carl as inferior to herself or her friends, after the services he had rendered them. Besides, 
It was doubtless for the purpose of hearing him talk of her that the Chevalier had sought the company of this devoted servant. Carl's discourse showed her that she was not mistaken. Oh, Signora, added he artlessly, that worthy young man is madly in love with you. He would commit crimes, even meannesses for you. I should wish to dispense with them, replied Consuelo, whom these expressions displeased, though Carl, doubtless, did not understand their extent. Can you explain to me, said she, to change the conversation, why I am so closely shut up here? Oh, as to that, Signora, if I knew, my tongue should be cut out before I would tell you, for I have given my word of honor to the Chevalier not to answer any of your questions. Many thanks, Carl. So you love the Chevalier even better than you do me? Oh, never. I do not say that. But since he has proved to me that it is for your benefit, I must serve you in spite of yourself. How has he proved that to you? I don't know, but I am well persuaded of it. Also, Signora, he has charged me to shut you up, to watch over you, to keep you prisoner, en secret, in a word, until we arrive. Then we do not remain here? We leave again as soon as night comes. We shall not travel by day any longer, in order not to fatigue you, and for other reasons which I do not know. And you are to be my jailer all that time? As you say, Signora, I have sworn upon the gospel. Well, Monsieur the Chevalier is facetious. I agree, Carl. I prefer you to Monsieur Swartz. And I will guard you a little better, replied Carl, laughing good-humoredly. To begin, I am going to prepare your dinner. I am not hungry, Carl. Oh, that is not possible. You must make a hearty dinner, Signora. That is my countersign, as said Master Schwartz. If you imitate him in everything, you will not force me to eat. He was well content to make me pay the next day for the dinner of the day before, which he conscientiously reserved for me. That made his business prosper. With me, it is different. You may be sure. The business concerns Monsieur the Chevalier. He is not miserly, not he. He pours out the gold by hands full. Either he must be extremely rich or his patrimony will not go very far. Consuelo had a candle brought, and returned to the next room in order to burn what she had written. But she sought for it in vain. She could not find it. End of chapter 22